and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Well, we said the Conservative Party conference would be rather lively, and we weren't wrong. If anything, we underestimated quite how lively it would be. U-turns and climb-downs, cabinet splits and backbench coups. It was not, it is safe to say, quite what Liz Truss would have scripted. So as weary Conservative politicians make their way back from Birmingham, what have we learned about the Prime Minister and her government? Is growth the new dividing line in Westminster and beyond? And is there really an anti-growth coalition? And what on earth is going to happen next in the never-ending, unpredictable rollercoaster ride of British politics? Joining me this week are two IFG colleagues who have survived their daytime appearances on the conference fringe and late-night cameos at the conference bar to report bright and early for IFG duty. And that's Chief Economist Gemma Tetlow and Programme Director Alex Thomas. Hi both. Hello. Hi, Hannah. And I'm really delighted to be joined by David Runciman, Professor of Politics at Cambridge University, author, writer and one-time podcast host on Talking Politics. David, it's great that you can join us. How are you? I'm, I'm fine in a COVID-y kind of way. Um, let's start with Liz Truss's speech and what it tells us about her premiership. She listed the enemies of growth, which include people who record podcasts and work for yep. think tanks. <laughs> <laughs> I assumed that that meant Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart. Well, at least not, not, <laughs> none of us have ta- taxied in from, from to the BBC from North London, so I think we're safe. Um, David, I, want, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, do you th- is, that a, is this a real battle uh, or do you think Liz Truss is trying to create an enemy to define her agenda against? Um, I mean, I don't think it's a real battle in the sense that the the idea that you're going to get these people taxing into the BBC studios to say they're against growth is is unlikely. And it's a pretty odd coalition and it's pretty broad as well. Um, I mean, I I suspect these are people that she doesn't like. You know, the thing about Liz Truss is that one of the advantages she has is I think there's some sincerity in this. There's some conviction in it. She feels like someone who's quite good at... Uh, identifying the people and the organizations she really hates. Um, so there was feeling behind it, but it's a pretty thin prospectus. And also, it, it, you know, the odd thing about it is it's the speech she would have given regardless of what had happened over the last couple of weeks. I mean, it was her stump speech, just sort of ratcheted up a little bit. Um, but it's not, you know, the idea that this is now the big dividing line, that you've got the pro-growth people on one side and the anti-growth people on the other side is farcical. And one of the interesting things, the commentary I saw afterwards was uh, Paul War from the I paper said he thought Liz Truss in that speech was channeling as many varieties of Margaret Thatcher as possible. Um, Did you hear those echoes listening to it yourself? Um, In a a way, I mean, it's clearly that's her vibe, right? It's It's the Thatcher vibe. But it, you know, it's not a particularly Thatcher speech. It's hard to imagine Thatcher making a speech like that. I mean, Margaret Thatcher did do quite a good job at party conferences of identifying the enemy within and, and listing the people that she was against. But it was so thin on what the actual agenda was. I mean, the, the difference, I know many people have pointed this out, but the difference is that Margaret Thatcher was deep down a pretty cautious politician, um, and she did tend to work it out before she left. And this feels like a government that's made a big leap and is now trying to work it out, and that's very un-Thatcher. Alex, I mean, what was your reaction to this speech? I think, you know, a lot of people said before Truss uh, became Prime Minister that, you know, if you if you want to put a positive spin on it, that she's a very bold politician. If you want to put a less positive uh, spin, that she's a reckless politician. Um, do you agree with, with, with David? Yeah, I, 
I agree with David on the particularly on that sort of uh, comparison with Thatcher, which is superficial. I was struck reading Ian Martin, who's uh, in the Times uh, today, Thursday, uh, who's you know a, a centre right leaning commentator, uh, talked about um, uh, how a kind of cartoon version of Margaret Thatcher uh, wouldn't um, work. I think the main my own reaction to the actual speech. I mean, it, it, it did the job. It stabilised things after a very rocky few days um and it set out uh, you know a coherent uh, uh, love it or hate it from your podcast studio but it set out a sort of um the beginnings of a kind of coherent uh, quasi philosophy if you like um but it was quite content free and i wonder if we would have had quite a lot more content if she hadn't realized over the preceding week just how fragile her coalition was and how <clears throat> boxed in she is by all these different um factions of conservative mps so uh, she needs to build a coalition but it, or a series of different coalitions in order to get um different policy uh, decisions through parliament um so the speech seemed to major on firstly the sort of her version of philosophy and secondly um uh, those areas that either don't require big contentious votes in parliament or the the you know the the what she sees as the safer areas of her coalition a colleague was saying it was very striking that i think it was either top or second in her list of things she wanted to really prioritize was uh, uh continuing to allow people to have two for one uh, offers in supermarkets, which may be, uh, you know, it, it's it's tangible at least, um, but it's not it's not the sort of thing that's going to transform the country. Gemma, what do you make of of trust pinning everything on growth? Should that be the overriding objective of, of any government? Obviously, it's government's prerogative to decide what its objectives are, and they're sort of accountable to the British public for what objectives they choose and whether they achieve them. I mean, in a sense, growth is. A good one to go for. Um, and so we've always already been discussing, there's not many governments uh, that I can think of who wouldn't say they would prefer to have more growth. So I think it is a bit of an artificial dividing line between this government and other political parties. Growth, if you can achieve it, delivers higher incomes for everyone, improving living standards, all of that makes people feel better. And it makes it easier to raise the tax revenues needed for the kind of public services that we want to have. Headline measures of GDP do miss some things that people probably care about, particularly things like sort of quality of people's health and things that aren't properly captured within GDP. And its GDP is not good at capturing the quality of the environment. And I think you can do things that boost GDP, but degrade the environment that we live in. So it does miss some things. So it's not everything. Um, Liz Truss has obviously put a big emphasis on overall growth being less concerned about the distribution of incomes. Um, I think, again, it's it's a bit artificial to say that those two things are an either-or choice. You can care both about having growth overall, but also being somewhat concerned about how that growth accrues to different groups of people. I think that's probably more where the dividing line perhaps is between political parties at the moment than really on growth versus no growth. And how long does she have to show that the the policies which um, we, apart from the tax cuts, we yet to, to, to fully see on the supply side reforms which she's promised. How long does she have to, to demonstrate that uh, this is actually going to work? I think the politics of this are really difficult for the government because even the really very best designed supply side policies, which is what she's really focused on, are going to take time to have an impact. These things don't boost growth overnight. So actually, I think the politics of this are very difficult for them. Between now and the next election, we're not going to see a lot of tangible evidence of the impact of their policy changes on growth. In fact, what happens to 
the economy is going to be much more determined by other global factors, the continuing high energy prices. Um, so I think what this government really needs to do is to convince the public and to convince markets that the policies they're pursuing will have positive growth benefits in future, because it's unlikely that the data is going to show that really in advance of the next election. David, what do you make of her chances on that front? Yeah, I mean, I think that the it's really interesting because what's odd about this is that the the positive side of this, if it's going to come through in growth, will be slow, but the negative side will be much quicker. So there is that trade-off. If you're growth, 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 that means you're going to be cutting corners in other areas to drive growth. And so the you know, the supply side revolution that we're being told about basically involves tearing up planning laws, making it easier to fire people and so on. And that will be felt sooner. I mean, people are more likely to notice sooner a change in the rules around fracking where they live than they are to notice the benefits of the medium-term growth of that. So it looks like it's all downside in political terms. Um, and we know that, you know, even among, well, maybe even particularly among conservative voters, there are strong feelings about some of the things that Liz Truss says she wants to tear up, um, that, that, you know, they're quite attached to the things that have allowed them to protect their lived environments from this kind of breakneck growth. So it looks to me like a very odd political strategy, and it is going to provoke the party. That's the other thing. So yes, broadly speaking, I think the parliamentary party is in favour of growth, and they probably would agree with her in very broad brush terms. Her analysis of Britain as a country that needs a kind of you know, kick up the backside. On the other hand, most of them can easily be mobilised to oppose the specific policies that will allow this breakneck growth because it affects their constituencies or it affects things that they and people like them care about. So it is, it's hard to see over two years where the upside is. I mean, I may yes. be missing something because, you know, it's not, I mean, she's not mad, but um, it, and when I was thinking about it, part of me kind of feels like there's nothing else she could do in the sense, what, you know, what is Liz Truss going to offer if it's not this? You know, she's not going to offer charisma. She's not, you know, she's not going to offer caring conservatism. I mean, this is all she's got. But the odd thing is all she's got is probably a catastrophe for her party. And it's interesting, I think she's she's also chosen not to offer stability. She could have come in and pivoted towards offering stability, I think, but she's chosen to sort of embrace disruption. And the problem with that, I mean, just picking up a bit on what David was just saying, uh, it, I, I think there is something interesting here about our parliament, you know, representative parliamentary uh, democracy working. There's been lots of talk about mandates and people getting exercised about trust not having a mandate. For me, for, for radical policies, for me, I, uh, I I've... I've got sort of less uh, concerned about that because uh, Parliament is doing its thing. And uh, the more radical she wants to be, the more opposition she'll encounter with Parliament, the less strength she has to overcome that opposition because she doesn't have a mandate. This is sort of how it's supposed to work is uh, as your political authority degrades and hers has degraded particularly quickly. Let's see if she can uh, reestablish it. Um, but, but Parliament is offering precisely the sort of check and balance that, that Parliament does. As you both said, it's it's just seems like a a curious political strategy when you have a maximum of two years to the next election to do the things which are, as David has said, slow to deliver. Um, And uh, as you said earlier, Alex, which you really have to take the time to build coalitions in order to achieve. And if she ultimately, you know, her goal is to really give this different approach to, to economics a chance, 
how that is going to happen if if it's only downside between now and the next election she doesn't get doesn't manage to win another term then it all seems uh, you know to be for nothing but we will have to wait and see um Gemma, just to go back to the the question that we were talking about earlier about so the su- supply side and so on um what should we be expecting do you think now given the sort of indications we've had from government but also the sort of noises off from the medium term uh, fiscal plan that we are promised and are we clear when it's going to be unveiled and 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 what sorts of things do you think it's going to contain now look into your crystal ball for us on the timing i've been left thoroughly confused by recent days um statements and media speculation as far as i can gather the official line still seems to be 23rd of november but seems to be a lot of well-sourced briefing that it will actually come before the end of this month rather than waiting that long on content um i think there are likely two strands of that one will be around the sort of supply side reforms that we've talked about um although i think it's still will be very interesting to see what that really entails, given the discussions we've been having about the level of opposition that there could be to some of the types of supply side reforms that she's said she wants to push through. So I think that may be a good indication of the extent of support that she's managed to build um, within the party is what we see exactly in the terms of that. The other thing we're expecting to see is a forecast from the Office for Budget Responsibility setting out how the policies announced so far and any new ones uh, affect that fiscal and economic outlook and taking on board the large amount of economic news that we've had since they published their last forecast back in March. Economic developments have not been good since then, so we would expect the forecast to be downgraded. Um, there are, the OBR is very unlikely to factor in much positive boost from any supply side or tax measures into their forecast for economic growth. Um, they rightly tend to be cautious in believing government promises about the positive boosts of that. And it does take time for these things um, to have an impact. So I think they will be wanting to see proof of that before they put it into their forecasts. Because of that, um, it's very likely to be the case that the tax cuts that were announced in the mini budget are not consistent with Kwasi Kwarteng's desire to have debt falling at some point in the future. So the real question then is, how do you square that circle? And there are kind of two approaches he could take. One would be to agree to differ with the OBR. He doesn't have to um, accept their version. He could say, your forecast suggests that debt's still rising, but I think my policy is going to be good for growth and actually that'll be fine. That's one approach. Um, the other approach, which is what's been more normal for chancellors, is to try to square that circle um, either by reversing more of the tax cuts that have been announced or by trying to do something to cut public spending. We've seen a lot of debate and disagreement this week about whether you could make cuts to welfare spending. The other way to do it would be to squeeze further public service spending. And that's been quite a common tactic of uh, past chancellors is particularly for the period beyond the current spending review. So where you don't have to spell out detailed plans for public services, pencil in a few more years of tight spending settlements make the numbers look good without having to give very much detail about how you really bring that about. Which also has the advantage of being um, f- further beyond the next election. <laughs> Correct. Um, 
just a, just a, a sort of a, a detail on that is it, I think it's very interesting how uh, a lot of people who'd never even heard of the ABR uh, before uh, recent weeks uh, will know exactly what that acronym stands for. What do you think this whole episode has done for their sort of position and standing? Yeah, so it feels like we've kind of done a massive circle. Um, I mean, kind of taking a slight step back, um, the Office of Budget Responsibility was set up by George Osborne in 2010 sort of it was something that they promised to do whilst in opposition and it's exactly one of those institutions that sounds great when you're in opposition you commit to do it and then the longer you spend in office the more you find that these institutions are a bit of a hindrance and you'd rather have more um, freedom not to be scrutinized by them so there was always I think a danger for the OBR that the longer time went on you have new governments coming in who were not so committed to their existence that you might find that a, new, a government decided they didn't want to have them anymore. And that really did seem to be where Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng started from, sidelining them, downplaying their importance, questioning the extent to which their forecasts could be relied upon and um, alongside criticism that they're making of the Bank of England. Um, and so it feels now that we've come completely full circle that the adverse reaction that there was to the mini budget, particularly with markets being very concerned about the fiscal sustainability of the plans that were outlined there when they came without that update to the forecast from the Office of Budget Responsibility, um, now feels like the OBR is in an even stronger position than it perhaps was previously, that the Chancellor is now really having to continuously reiterate his commitment to those independent institutions. And uh, we heard that both from Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss in the party conference. Having really severely underestimated how much space the existence of the OBR and an independent Bank of England and the other sort of economic architecture gave Truss and Kwarteng to do more radical policies. One of the ironies of all of this is I really think, I don't know what you think, Gemma and, and, and David, but what uh, hugging the OBR and the Bank of England closer would have uh, given much more space and uh, opportunity for uh, the government to pursue more radical policies. Yeah, I totally agree with that. David, I mean... Do you think this is a sort of journey that lots of prime ministers and, and and senior politicians have to go on when they when they actually get the top job, actually um, realizing the the significance and importance of some of these institutions, which over time have been wrapped around uh, government in the UK? Um, I assume so, but what seems unique about this journey is the speed of it and, and <laughs> the, the public nature of it. I mean, one's used to hearing after the event, you know, that Tony Blair comes in and then he discovers how government works and it fiddles around and he sees which levers do what and so on. But this is all being played out in public and it's had, as we've just heard, this extraordinary sort of counter effect than what was intended, which is they're now trapped because everything that they do is seen through the prism of these relationships. And I totally agree. There's a way of playing these relationships where they give you protection for what you want to do. And they've managed to engineer in the space of a few weeks, a, a way of operating these relationships so that every move they make is being judged against the reaction of these institutions for which they were expressing a certain contempt. It's I mean, I, it's hard for me, I think, to state how baffling the politics of this is, because they seem to have achieved in a month all the things that they would have, you'd have thought, done anything to avoid. And they've done it by their own decisions. And so there's something 
peculiar going on here psychologically, I think. I mean, I think Liz Truss's psychology is an interesting subject. I don't know if we want to talk about it, but um, <laughs> it, you know, it, it was strong in that speech. There is, you know, if, if there's a philosophy that is anchored in her personal experience, and she did the conference thing of you know, trying to tell a life story, which was her story, it's that people consistently have underestimated her and that, as it were, you know, people and institutions have been arrayed against her but look here she's prime minister so she must be doing something right and again that seems to me to be madness i mean it's just <laughs> you know, the idea that you would tell that story about yourself as the basis for how you're going to operate as prime minister we are where we are i think in part because she thought that she Liz trust could do things that other people can't because here's the evidence over 10 years people don't particularly like her she's not very charismatic and she's prime minister or she's prime minister by a weird slightly random sequence of events that have I think nothing to do with her life story and now even a month in we've seen that approach is is disastrous I mean it really is disastrous the idea that somehow because she's Liz trust she can do things that other people can't and she's trapped I think I think that's really interesting, and I think there is something. I mean, in in, in most politicians, if we're honest, about their their self belief in their ability to do things that that others can't. I guess there's just you know the, the, always the question of, of to what extent that's tempered by a sort of uh, a humility of realizing the, the the size of the challenge they face in normal times, let alone um, where where Truss is right now. Um, Alex, Truss is returning now slightly sooner than originally planned uh, to face uh, her MPs and, and the opposition in, uh, in Parliament from next week. What do you think she should be doing now in terms of, of, of bringing her party with her on the journey she wants to make? Oh, gosh, that's a <laughs> $64,000 question or the $64 billion question. Um, uh, I think she needs to uh, recognise the political reality that she's in. I think some of the briefings that we've seen over the course of the last day or two that, you know, there'd be lots of blood and thunder in terms of whipping MPs and, uh, you know, a harsh um, uh, whipping operation would get uh, the the backbenchers back into line is, you know, again, extremely counterproductive and will only have the opposite effect. And if MPs, you know, what what we've seen is that MPs, uh, Truss's biggest card to play, I suppose, is that MPs really, really, really don't want another leadership election with all the kind of unpredictable consequences that might flow from that. But if MPs feel too boxed in, uh, then uh, that makes it more likely, I think, they would take that um, radical gamble. So I think that would be counterproductive. I think uh, uh, the Prime Minister should lean in on the areas where, as David and you were saying earlier, she has uh, the broadest coalition of parliamentary support. So yes to growth, um, yes to um, a, a set of policies that support that where she can get agreement. I just frankly think some of the policies that she's been pursuing or briefing out, like uh, any sort of major planning reform, fracking, uh, are dead and buried before they've started. So obviously 
she'll be need to be mindful of further kind of U-turns and further expressions of weakness, but sending out signals that she will not pursue those policies without very careful consultation with her uh, Conservative MPs seems very important. And then, as we were saying, really, I think this sort of belated embrace of some of the institutions that would give her more space. So handling, obviously, the uh, there'll be one critical moment when the Bank of England stops its um, uh, uh, financial support that Emma is far more qualified to talk about than I am in, I think it's the 14th of October. So there'll be a critical moment to get through that and send out message of reassurance to the markets as well as to her backbenchers. Uh, and then whether it's on the 23rd of November or another time, they will need to you know, just send out calm, competent uh, signals of, of good governance. Maybe we would say that at the, at the IFG in our podcast uh, uh, studio. The, the the biggest jeopardy, even if she wants to um, uh, sort of adopt that kind of calmer, more sober approach, which I don't think she will, by the way, um, is spending cuts. Because as part of this boxing in, she, she needs to demonstrate uh, that she's able and willing to make spending cuts and that's going to create opposition within the cabinet uh never mind about benches and i i find it really hard to see how she's going to navigate that i mean there are all sorts of you know clever people at the treasury can come up with wheezes about how you account for pensions and how you might make these really long-term things that make the figures look good um but she's going to need to bring particularly the obr along with her to say actually yes these 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 changes that you might make are credible and that therefore you know gives you the um uh the 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 um space to continue with your economic policy i'm not sure that was really an answer to your question but <laughs> that's that's kind of how i'd try and put it together just to pick up on the point you were making there about bringing uh, her cabinet with her david we were talking in the office about collective cabinet responsibility mm. and journalists at the conference obviously were, were seizing on its ab- apparent absence um but how much do you think it actually matters it matters, but it matters less than it did because we've had a period where there hasn't been a huge lot of it. You know, this is coming at the end of a series of conservative governments where discipline has broken down in various ways. So I think you know, there's a higher threshold for this kind of thing. And it did make me laugh that sort of Penny Morden was allowed to get away with it on the grounds that she was opposing a policy that hadn't actually properly been announced as a policy yet. So she was able to <laughs> oppose it. That's one way of imposing discipline, saying we don't mean what we say. So you can get away with it. Um, I mean, I think in a way, the interesting question here is, and I'd be interested to know what you think on this, if she's got one thing going for her, she she's got a majority, she's got a solid majority in Parliament, she's got a very fractious party, she's got the one you know, disciplining effect that you can use as a last resort under our system, which is to make something a confidence vote. You know, the one thing that Conservative MPs want less than another leadership election is a general election. She's got the advantage that on current polling, only two of them would retain their seats. So that does focus <laughs> That's a curious on, advantage. It's a, cu- it's a curious <laughs> advantage. It means she has one you know, weapon in her arsenal that she can probably only use once. But we know that if she if she forced the issue on whatever it is, she would win a confidence vote in the Commons. And I am very interested to sort of think about when you think that moment will come, because at some point it will come. You know, if it really breaks down, the only thing she's got left to hold her party together is the threat of a general election. But it's such a precarious position that she's in, and the politics of it is so weird at the moment you know, it, it's it's very finely judged, and I think one sign of you know how much trouble she is is how soon we get into discussions of you know in order to get things through the Commons, she has to start making noises about you know, if you don't back me, you know the alternative is a general election, 
And you know, if that if, if we're there in a few weeks, then it's a sign that she's almost got no authority left because that is the last resort, not the first resort. But when you think about what she's got going for her, it's quite hard to think what she's got apart from the last resort. Um, so yep. when when it'll come, but it's you know it's 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 the one thing she's got, which is she's got a parliamentary majority, a good one. How does she mobilize it? You know, without that kind of threat, it's hard to see. It is hard, and I think the trouble is with having this sort of majority that sometimes it leads politicians to 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 just assume that they're going to be able to do things without laying the groundwork, as we've seen in, in, in recent days, as we saw with Boris Johnson, I think, in terms of not bringing his parliamentary party with him on things. It can be a sort of disadvantage because of the psychological effect of thinking, oh, well, you know, I've got, got this big majority. Um, I guess the other thing she has in her arsenal is sort of in the short term is the possibility of a reshuffle, which she can use to threaten to keep her uh, ministers in line. But I think, you know, more than more than usually, the people who are, you know, sitting in her cabinet now are, are, are really sort of constantly going to be weighing their personal advantage in terms of remaining part of this government versus, um, you know, maybe finding a principled reason not to be part of it at some point. So I think that that's an, another thing that we could see playing out. Let's take a step back and look at the state of British politics more generally um, after, uh, well, several years, a decade perhaps of of turbulence and and drama. David, you, uh, I I don't think we're at either conference, but but, but observing, (laughs) observing, no doubt. uh, um, COVID maybe saved you uh, from that experience. Um, What do you make of the health of Westminster's two biggest parties right now? Do you think the electorate is is being presented uh, perhaps more than uh, in recent years now with a very clear choice? Um, So so I'm really torn on this because for quite a while now, I've had a suspicion that the Labour Party's position, this might sound odd, is artificially good in the sense that outside a a two-party first-past-the-post system, I think the kind of party that the Labour Party is with its historic legacy, the kind of coalition that it's trying to hold together, um, it's really weak and it would really struggle under any other kind. It would break apart under any kind of system. And that there's something about it, I still feel this, there's something about it that's still pretty moribund. It's struggling to come up with new ideas. It's very weighed down by history, both procedural history. <laughs> it's incredibly boring the way the Labour Party does politics and <laughs> policy. Um, but also it, it, it does feel like a stale party. I, I think it's unfair that people put all this on Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer, I think... You, know, you you can take him or leave him as a politician, but he he's at the head of a party which is itself in some ways what people accuse Starmer of being of, which is cautious and boring and and sort of weighed down by by the past, and so it's very hard now. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Labour is polling as it was under Tony Blair. You know, fifty percent. You know, incredibly rare under our system for fifty percent of respondents say they'll vote for a party at the next election. So I genuinely feel torn on this in that. Maybe I was completely wrong, and actually the Labour Party was just waiting for the government to fall apart, and then under a two-party system, it just hoovers up all of the opposition that there is out there. And it is interesting that the Liberal Democrats don't seem to have gained from this. I mean, one would assume in a general election, a lot of these Tory seats, when they all fall, will fall to the Liberal Democrats, but it's become very two-party. The opposition is just, in polling, has just swung 
to Labour. So maybe it's not moribund, but I just still have a nagging suspicion that the Labour Party is, even under these conditions, weaker than it looks because its its coalition and its brand of politics is really stale and it hasn't reinvented itself. And there's no incentive for it to reinvent itself now because it's at 50% in the polls, unreinvented, so why would it? And if I was a Labour politician, it would still give me pause because you know, other parties of the centre-left around Europe have just, you know, it turns out they are completely standing on sand. You know, they just dissolve under pressure. And if it's just first past the post that's keeping you afloat, it's still dangerous. So I, I'm, I'm torn on this. Um, but I, I have a nagging suspicion that Labour shouldn't be too complacent. That's really interesting. Alex? Yes, and I think, interesting on uh, David just mentioning first past the post there, there was actually less discussion at the Labour Party conference. I mean, there were a lot of leaflets, but there was less discussion about electoral reform than I was certainly expecting and then seemed to be the case in the run-up to it. So uh, whether that was a reflection of the polls or they hadn't, uh, I don't think they'd quite shifted as dramatically by uh, at that stage or or whether it was, uh, you know, the general discipline of the uh, Labour Party uh, conference, I don't know. But uh, interesting to see if that debate um, recedes or, or, or accelerates. But the point the point that came to mind as David was speaking was at the Tory conference, there was a lot of, uh, there were a number of interesting events uh, done by More in Common and uh, Rachel Wolf and others of Public First who um, uh, has done lots of stuff with us uh, as well. Uh, and, and Rachel's um, uh, sort of question or suggestion was that there is a not populist but popular uh, space opening up on the right of politics that uh, or the centre right of politics that is the sort of um, uh, you know high spending on public services um, but more uh, right wing uh, or less kind of libertarian on social issues and, and I you know not not my field of expertise but um, she, she was she certainly said that that the question is not whether that political space exists or not it's whether there there are individuals or one individual and a kind of um, uh, party mechanics that set up to exploit it. Uh, and again, that made me think to, to pick up off David's theme that whether the sort of the death of political parties in the UK is often predicted and rarely happens, but whether the, the overall health of the political system, as you implied with your first question, Hannah, is, is less uh, healthy and less secure than we might assume. And David, on, on the Conservative Party, I mean, are we just witnessing a party that's dealing with the struggles of having been in office for 12 years? Or is there something bigger going on, do you think? I think there's something bigger than that's going on. And it has sort of winnowed itself down. You know, it's been through a series of purges. That's one of the things that's interesting about it. There are quite a lot of people on the outside. You know, you can't turn on the radio at the moment without hearing David Gork and that version of um, conservatism. And, and there are quite a few people like him. I think for them, in a way... The nightmare now, and I have spoken to one or two of these these politicians. I mean, they're aware in a way that the a significant change in the party system does depend on changing the electoral system. But I think there was some hope that at the end of this government, there would be a minority Labour government of some kind, and there, there would have to be some arrangements to change uh, the voting system in order to keep that government in power, uh, different from the, the Osborne Lib Dem thing, which was designed to fail, one that might be designed to succeed. And that then creates an opportunity on the centre-right for new kinds of groupings. In a way, the nightmare for them is that Liz Truss is so terrible that um, Labour might win a majority. And then we're back in 1997. <laughs> Blair suddenly discovers that 
you can't change the system when it's just delivered you the thing you've always dreamed of, which is a working majority, and in his case, a landslide majority in Parliament. Um, I th- it, oddly, I think the reconfiguring of British politics would have been accelerated by Sunak winning. And Sunak then leads the Conservatives to a defeat next time because I'm, you know, it's hard to see them winning. Uh, but the kind of defeat that requires a coalition politics to replace them. By choosing a politician who to me seems the one politician who could lead the Conservatives to ruin, uh, they have perhaps also blocked the possibility of that reform. And then I don't know what happens on the right of British politics. You've got a Conservative Party that's that's gone down the road to disaster. You've got a Labour Party that isn't going to change the electoral system. And then you've got a kind of reconfiguring on the right under first past the post. And we just know that under first past the post, (laughs) these are still the two main parties that they have been for 100 years. It's incredibly hard to break their hold. Um, So it's this is a really dangerous time for the Conservative Party because it might have trapped itself properly with the system that could destroy it, but doesn't give it the chance to rebuild itself. Because then I'm saying the Labour Party are moribund and, and the <laughs> Party have a death wish, and yet these are the two parties that we're stuck with. I think British politics is in a, is in a weird, um, slightly nightmarish state. But that might just be because I've got COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Gemma, um we have suddenly found ourselves from an economics point of view in a in a political debate where the two main parties have very different uh views of 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 what needs to be done does this feel like a defining moment a nightmarish moment for economics as well so i think you're right i mean it's boris johnson was actually a conservative prime minister who was quite in favor of a lot of state intervention he there were a lot of things that he wanted to do for the state for more role. So we now do, it does feel like we have very different offerings with Truss and Kwarteng really pushing for low tax, small state, um, and the Labour Party still talking about nationalisation of some industries, um, much more willing to talk about sort of the state doing things, um, for example, on home insulation, that sort of thing. Um, and I think there was a also a split on things like the Conservative Conference, certainly all the conversations I had, there was a lot of talk about wealth creators, we need to cut tax, free them up to do things versus Rachel Reeves at Labour Conference saying we'd be happy to change non-DOM tax rules, and um, which was totally um, anathema to people at the Conservative Party Conference. It, is it a defining moment for economics itself? I mean, I think this the, the policies from Truss and Kwarteng that are being put forward. I think it's actually been interesting how much that has revealed how few people there are actually within the economics community advocating for quite the version of low tax, small state um, that they talk about. There's not a lot. I mean, they've railed against the orthodoxy, but I think it's the orthodoxy is more a kind of collection of the wisdom that's built up over years about where you do need to state where you don't. And actually, if you want to use the tax system to promote growth, that's not simply about cutting headline rates. I mean, even looking back to Margaret Thatcher's period in government, Thatcher wasn't just about slashing tax rates. There was also a lot of restructuring of the tax system that went on under Margaret Thatcher, shifting from income taxation to consumption taxation and having flat rates of tax across all forms of income, which none of those are sort of the 
anything like the intellectual discussions that this government are having. So um, I don't think it's a moment of crisis for economics, but I think it has it has shone a light on some of those issues. And I think it's probably throwing up more discussion of those issues and why perhaps so many within the economics community don't quite take as given that the, the trust quarting approach to growth is the way to have maximum benefit. Do you, th- do you think Gemma will get 364 economists or how many it was writing to the Prime Minister as, as Thatcher had? Because I, I, I do think that, that that sort of legend is 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 quite present in the in the sort of trust team mind that you know uh, uh, we were talking earlier about some of the differences with Thatcher, but it does seem to me that, that is a similarity. I mean, she did take on the economic orthodoxy, and uh, her supporters would argue um, uh, was right to do so. Yeah, I think that's right, but I think it's. Um... In a way, I think it's a good challenge to the economics profession to explain what they're thinking and where they agree and where they disagree, where we agree and where we disagree. Um, but it's a bit simplistic to just point back to that experience under Thatcher because evidence, experience, knowledge has evolved since then. So it's not as if the economics community has been pushing exactly the same policy prescription for 40 years and hasn't moved on. And here's another prime minister pushing back against the same thing. So I, I was also thinking about that parallel and just how embedded it is in sort of Tory mythology that sort of almost the day that letter was written, it was it was 81, was it? I think it was 81. I think so. Yeah. Um, the, the economy turned around. Um, but it was after two years, you know, two years of difficult government in which tough decisions were, were made. But also the... I think it is central in the trust mindset. But the odd thing, and we were talking about this earlier, it was as though she had taken on those 364 economists, but that they were in a position to assess the credibility of her government in a way that the markets would <laughs> take seriously. You know, those were just academic economists. But she sort of in her mind convinced herself that she's doing the same thing with the Bank of England and the OBR. And so when they say, we don't think this will work, she can say, well, they said that in 1981, look who's laughing now, while the pound drops through the floor. It just, it's as though they've taken these myths and just applied them willy-nilly to the current situation. It's part of the, I think, Liz Truss's sort of psychological makeup, that she she, she cherry-picks these myths and she can see where she fits in. And it's just not the same. I mean, it just isn't the same. A month in, to have institutions that have real power over you alienated is not the same as having 364 economists write to the Times and say the government must change course. It's just not the same. But I think I've got a horrible feeling that they think it is the same. So David, with with all the focus on trust and the economy, there were clearer other big questions that have not been so discussed in recent weeks. And and one of the most serious is um, the uh, what's Trust has been able to, uh, wanting to put a lot of emphasis on as the route to the energy crisis is Putin's war in Ukraine. She clearly wants to be seen as a successor to Johnson in terms of um, his approach to Ukraine. And one of your last episodes of Talking Politics was called Putin's Next Move. What do you now think that is going to be? Uh, again, without wanting to make this too parochial, you know, the other thing that this trust will be aware of if she thinks back to 1981 is that 1982 was the Falklands, which changed everything. And if she's prime minister for two years in this kind of international environment, it it really is the case that anything could happen. And I think that um, we probably have been too focused on 
domestic things because the fact that the war is going so badly for Russia and for Putin makes it more likely than it was that something will happen this winter. I mean, what that thing is, I don't know, but it's very hard to see as things stand. It doesn't look so much like a frozen conflict anymore. I mean, it's moving. You know, it's, it's literally moving on the ground. And so if it's not frozen, then something has to give. It can't just carry on as it is. And what that thing is, I don't know. Um, you know, there are some terrible scenarios. And then there are just some considerably more chaotic scenarios, including the fall of Putin, you know, something dramatic happening in Moscow, or European politics being really affected by a terrible winter <clears throat> and an energy crisis, a falling out between the Germans and the French. You know, all of these things are possible over the next six months. And at that point, the concerns of the last month will look quite parochial. And who knows then what happens? Politics is is deeply unpredictable. It's an incredibly dangerous position to get into as a as a national leader to think. Well, with luck, something will turn up which will make my current troubles look like a storm in a teacup. Because that thing could be incredibly dangerous, and no one should want the, you know the international situation to get more dangerous than it is. But if I had to say, I would think that in March, April, we might look back on this turbulent month, as Quasi Quartan called it, and it might look less significant than it does now because something will have put it into perspective. Uh, in a way, it doesn't matter if that's good for trust or bad for trust because it will be more important than that. But if this is no longer a frozen conflict, if it's moving, then something's going to give, and we should be thinking more about that. Alex Truss is just off on to the first meeting of this uh, European political community. Is that uh, is that significant in this space? Do you think, as, as David says, uh, it's part of Truss's thinking to factor in these the sort of what, what's going to happen on the in the international sphere into into how her premiership is going to develop? Uh, on the European political community, it's too early to tell, and I'm not sure even Truss and her team and the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, really know uh, yet. But <clears throat> clearly, a decision has been taken to re-engage, uh, whether that's um, a consequence of some of the broader geopolitical points that, that David was talking about. The um, you know uh, Putin has certainly solidified NATO, and maybe there's a bit of European solidarity uh, in the mix there uh, as well. I think, uh, it, but I do think it's notable that that Truss has decided to go to this grouping, which is, uh, you know, potentially designed to move the debate on from some of the tensions in the uh, uh, post-Brexit years. I think possibly even more notable are the noises that are coming out of um, uh, Steve Baker and Chris Heaton-Harris on Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol. Um, if, If that means that a decision has been taken to really do some serious negotiation and to try and uh, fix some of the uh, problems with the Northern Ireland Protocol in good faith, then I do think that's uh, obviously immensely uh, consequential. And uh, again, in that geopolitical context, it must be in the UK's interest to have strong and functional relationships with allies um, in in Europe. So, uh, uh, if that's a move, it seems to be uh, you know a constructive one. David, do you, do you think that's how we should be reading this? Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and again, in these areas as well, it seems like she, she's managed to get herself quite boxed in. I mean, there's actually a limit to how much <clears throat> she can do that's radical or different on the international stage because she is in 
such a weak position. I think she, you know, I, th- I think she's probably more open-minded than we give her credit for on these questions. She's probably, broadly speaking, a pragmatist on a lot of these uh, issues. And it is interesting that, that the mood has changed so much um, over Northern Ireland. But you know, when one thinks about it, she's got a lot to deal with domestically. Almost certainly, there will be a lot to deal with internationally over the next six months. And the other thing that she is going to have to do is prioritise. Um, and so it is possible, you know, and it does happen, that she will pivot to being more of a foreign affairs prime minister as as a way of dealing with some of her domestic difficulties. Who knows? But the one thing that I think is impossible to imagine is that she, that Liz Truss politics could continue at its current pitch both domestically and internationally. It's just not sustainable. It's too frenetic. Um, you know, it's too much of a circus. Uh, there's too much surrounding it. There's too much noise surrounding it. And presumably, sooner rather than later, she is going to have to establish one or two clear priorities and stick to them. And it's possible that those priorities will be in the international arena, because, it, you know, apart from anything else, given the nightmare that she's in domestically, weirdly, it might be easier. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Alex Thomas, Gemma Tetlow, and especially to David Runciman. Great to see you. And thanks to you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And check out our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk for recordings of all our conference fringe events, Labour and Conservative. So the conference season is over. Parliament returns next week. Karma times ahead. I'm not sure I'd bet on it. See you all next week. <laughs>